Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. Brooke Bannister's mother was a pioneer in cool climate Sonoma Coast winemaking. After illness stole her ability to run a winery day to day, the brand went dormant. Years later, Brooke realized the importance of his mother's legacy and relaunched his family's label. Today, Brooke has resurrected his mother's vision in the wine he makes. I sat down to talk with him about this vision, how he maintains it in the cellar, the potential for the next generation of the family in the wine business, and of course, we tasted some delicious wine. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditer.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditer.com. Hi, welcome to The Honest Pour. I'm John Leonard. Joining me today is Brooke Bannister of Bannister Wines. Welcome to the show. Thank you, John. How'd you get into wine? Um, through my uh, mom being in the wine business, actually. So I, um, since I was born, my mom was in the wine business. She got in when she was young. Um, she was sort of a pioneering woman in the wine world. Tell me about that. Yeah, so um, to go back even farther, kind of the roots of the whole thing, she um, got a master's in food science from Kansas State. Well, my dad was stationed at Fort Riley, um, Kansas. He got drafted uh, during the Vietnam War, got sent to the military base there. So when he got done, they moved back to California, and she got a job in a lab in um, Sonoma County at a big kind of mass production wine facility. She didn't know anything about wine and never really given it much thought, but with the chemistry degree, they needed somebody that could, you know, bring, you know, that chemistry knowledge into the lab. And then she discovered while she was working in there that she had a really good palate. And you're always reconciling, you know, your, what you're tasting and smelling against what the kind of data is when you're working on wine. You need, you need both of the sets of information. And she just had a fantastic natural ability at that. And so she kept kind of learning more about wine. And then she and a friend of hers realized there was no kind of independent laboratory for wine services out there. So they started the first business of that kind in 1970. So if I were like a small winery and I didn't really have my own lab, I could come there. Yeah, yeah, which was 99.9% of wineries didn't have their own lab. So um, they started this as a little business and it, you know, that was 1979. It was right when kind of the Sonoma County wine industry was about to take off. So she ended up providing kind of the infrastructure and the support everybody needed to do that. And that just got her in the middle of the wine business, um, you know, she was doing lots of consulting. They were doing lots of, you know, basic analysis for people. Um, she was even doing some consulting winemaking and anything you could think of. And so she, that got her interested in making some wine herself. So in 1989, she started our um, little family brand, which is Bannister. Always kind of small production, 12 to 1,500 cases a year. She went out and found some really interesting kind of cool climate, Pinot Noir vineyards, of which there were not many in 1989. Really? Now so that was still a new thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some really nice cool climate Chardonnay and a little bit of Zinfandel. And so I grew up being around it, helping her. I never gave it a lot of thought in any sense because it was just so familiar to me. And uh, I moved away after high school, went to college, ended up living in New York and then in Oakland. I moved back to Healdsburg, which is um, kind of where, where I'm from in Sonoma County in 2011 and in the kind of preceding years that my mom had had some health problems that forced her to retire and she hadn't made wine since 2006 and I did not want to see the family business and all of her work disappear so I decided to kind of jump in and 
restart the uh, wine production with our under our family label again. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So you really, really reinvented it, huh? To a certain degree, yeah. I mean, and the thing is, I'm trying to continue to make wines, you know, larger than the style my mom made because they were great wines. And I wanted to tell her story, and I even, you know, keep her involved. She is retired, but I'm constantly, you know, tasting wines with her, just talking about it, you know, either anecdotally or, you know, going over mm -hmm. protocol, stuff like that. Because um, it's really about her. I have a lot of creative um, outlets in my life, luckily, so I don't need to, like, you know, be, like, the winemaker necessarily. I just want to keep this family business going and, like, winemaking is part of what uh, it takes to keep it going so you said you wanted to make wines in the style that your mom made yeah what is that style? how would you describe so I, it I, what i would say is like really balanced um there are, balance is a bit of a yeah so, jargony can, word now i go into it a lot is, of tasting but I can, rooms but i can elaborate on that okay. um so you know there's a movement to make these kind of like lower ripeness lower alcohol pinot noirs and then there's a movement to make these big kind of overwrought, you know, high scoring, syrupy kind of Pinot Noirs. Her wines never fell into those categories. You know, they were picked, um, you know, kind of that medium ripeness, um, just following that, uh, that kind of sweet spot where you have, um, f you know, f flavors and structure. So you've got, you know, the kind of the deep Burgundian spiciness in the Pinots along with some of that California fruit. Um, and you, the best way to attain that my opinion is to just take a balanced approach. You know what the sugars you're picking at in the winemaking process. Um, and that also makes the wines really food friendly. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that was always um, kind of true about her wines was they just went great with food. So I think that's without even, I, I can't even tell you exactly like the, the protocol. I just have a feel for making wines that um, go well with food. Okay, so. that's fair. Do you still purchase all your fruit, or do you own any property? No, and um, yeah, we're the we're the low overhead model. So w one of the things that made it a kind of great idea and, a, and successful, easy to perform business was that she was friends with all these great uh, grape growers, and so she had access to amazing fruit. And so we just kind of continued to do that through the years. Um, we never got into grape growing because we wouldn't be able to do as good a job as. As those guys, um, I mean, we're sourcing you're from. You're not, you're not farmers. But but not only that, they're world class vineyards that we're sourcing from. Um, so there's just no reason to try yeah, and well, do something gonna, that somebody so else. Tell them what yeah. to do, right? Yeah. In fact, I never even like say a word. Like I'm I'm happy with the way people farm. Some winemakers go out and like to nitpick. Tinker or, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Or complain about this and that. I just I really. So uh, you're you're you're. Your, your, your job in the farming process to say, okay, I'd like to pick now? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the extent of it. Um, and then the other thing is we don't even own our own winery. We just do custom crush at my oh, friend's yeah, really? Yeah. So my friend has a facility in a warehouse that, um, in Healdsburg. He kind of turned the warehouse into a winemaking facility. It's fairly rudimentary, but it works really well for small production. And so I just pay him to use his equipment, and I've got a key, and I come and go and do my work. and. Um, how much wine are you making? You know, we're kind of from, say, 900 to 1,100 cases a year, depending on... It's really small. Yeah, yeah. But it's one-person operations, just me, and, um, you know... The really, you're doing the whole thing. You're yeah, fining and, and racking and doing all that. All that, yeah. And, you know, on the sales side of it, it takes really a lot of time and energy. Um, so it's kind of a... It's a size that you could do one person, you know, um, 
I could make a little more wine, but I also don't want to get behind an inventory. So sure, and that's kind of where I'm at with it right well, now. Well, with that little wine available, how are you selling it? I mean, I obviously can't go to you know Total Wines and pick mm -hmm. you up because they, they they can't carry it, or you know Benny's here in Chicago. Where is your wine available? Um, you know, mostly I sell through the website, which is BannisterWines.com, but uh, I do do a little distribution um, and mostly in California and then here in Chicago is kind of my my only big market outside of California actually primarily in restaurants I bet um, some and some really nice little retail shops yeah yeah cool cool what wines are you making we do uh, four different pinots because that was kind of I wanted to show people the how kind of wide the um, the ranges of microclimates in Sonoma County that you could um, make like a really good Pinot Noir from, from different parts that are hours apart. Um, there's nowhere else in the world that has th that many microclimates in the same geographic footprint, which to me is just this kind of magical thing about Sonoma County. So, um, so we work with these four Pinot vineyards and then do um, a Chardonnay, a Zinfandel, and Riesling. Okay. These are two really small lots you're dealing yeah. with. Like yeah, they are. Like a barrel or two kind of lots. Yeah. Yeah, or three to four, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Specifically, like where around Sonoma, you say Sonoma County, that's a yeah, yeah. massive sure. kind so, of footprint. What um, are we talking about? So the, the, the Pinot we do kind of, that's kind of our baby um, that I just love, is from a vineyard called Campbell Ranch, which is up in the northwest corner of the county. So it's really remote. It's is middle that of, Sonoma Coast? Yeah, it's Sonoma Coast. And it's, it's the total middle of nowhere, but it's like a, one of the... I think greatest spots in the world for growing Pinot Noir. It is kind of about thousand foot elevation, so it's above the fog line. So the sun is always out, but it never gets hot there. So we just have these really mild hours, um, you know, ripening hours where uh, the phenolics can get really um, mature in the fruit and give us all this great structure without worrying about the sugar getting out Spiking of control. Yeah, so so we don't have problems with like high alcohol or having to pick too early um, and then we just get this great like new world old world kind of combination um, that's just I don't see coming from many other areas of California so yeah Sonoma Coast is really special yeah parts of it yeah it's a it's a big AVA that's yeah one, it's one problem with it really it, but, needs to be divided yeah, up in yeah, uh, they, they, smaller ones they need to make some more little subsections but we gotta be careful it, not but, to turn into burgundy yeah at the same time yeah, then, then nobody knows it's going <laughs> right <laughs> um, so yeah up in the northwest corner and um then we make a pinot from a vineyard called Lancel Creek that's on the Occidental Ridge. So that's kind of mid-Sonoma Coast. All, again, kind of high elevation on the, um, kind of the high spot before you kind of head down to the coast there. Um, then uh, down on the, uh, the bay, San Pablo Bay, which is the back of the San Francisco Bay that comes up into a little kind of southern border of Sonoma County there. We make a pinot from a vineyard called Wildcat Mountain right inside the Sonoma Coast AVA Wildcat Mountain. It's, it's a newer vineyard. I think it was planted about 15 years ago. Um, and it's isolated up on this mountaintop. It's the highest elevation vineyard down there. Really volcanic soil, a lot of wind, which all gives you kind of unique Pinot Noir, kind of high tannin, almost like those, um, like Mount Etna. Um, if you ever had those mm -hmm. um, Italian reds, really tannic um, from all that volcanic minerality yeah. and so you, really unique Pinot from there. Um, and then we do, a, the Riesling actually comes from Mendocino County. We're going to taste that. From um, Mendocino? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, from a really, really distinctive vineyard called Cole Ranch, which is actually its own AVA, 
what they call a monopole. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a unique vineyard in, again, like an isolated kind of spot by itself, which is why it became an AVA, because it's not near anything else. Um, and it's got old vine Riesling on it, which is really hard to find in California. Mm -hmm. And how about the Zin? The Zin comes from Cyane and Dry Creek, okay. kind of up on the eastern bench there where some of the really high quality stuff comes from. Now your mom stopped making wine, you said in 2006. Yeah. After 2000, between 2006 and 2011, did the wine just, did the brand just stay dormant? Yeah, we just basically, you know, um, did, you know, we let the license go, sold whatever little bit of equipment we owned in 2006, and that was that. So there was, so really I've had to rebuild the brand. Yeah. We were out of the market just long enough for nobody to really remember, you know. What, what, what was it that made you decide to do that? Is it a legacy thing? You know, or? I think, um, we, to a certain degree, yeah, I didn't. I really didn't want to see my mom's work disappear because she, like you said when we started the interview, she was a pioneer in winemaking in the United States. Not just in winemaking, but just in the wine um, kind of business overall. And, um, you know, she did things like, you know, go out and find and isolate, you know, wild yeasts um, when she was, you know, first started in the 80s and um, share them with her colleagues. That was before anybody even thought about that kind of stuff. And she brought products in from Europe that people needed for winemaking and, um, you know, spent thousands of hours on the phone with winemakers all over the United States just helping them with the various issues that come up because part of making wine is running into problems. It's a, it's a, you're almost supposed to, in a way, it's a natural product. Um, so, um, you know, I also, for me, I never felt like you had to do the same thing for your entire life. So it, it felt okay for me to just change careers um, and do that. And um, but yeah, I just, I really didn't want to see the, the little thing she started go away. So that was kind of the impetus for that. So we talked about that and uh, your, your, how you, your approach to farming or your hands-off approach to farming. Uh -huh. What's yeah. going on in the cellar? Well, I was going to say, yeah, then there's the hands-on in the, in the... So, you know, winemaking on this small scale is, like, really hands-on, obviously. I make everything in, you know, open, uh, what we call one-ton fermenters. Sure. So you're right there interacting with the fruit, you know, doing the punch-downs, smelling and tasting it um, kind of as soon as it comes in. My mom found these native yeasts over the years that we have still. Um, and so I use a lot of those and what we'll actually do is say if we get like a three ton pick then you know we're breaking that down into like say four different um, fermentation containers you know mm -hmm. four tea bins put maybe like you know two-thirds three-quarters of a ton in each one I'll do a different yeast in each one a different one of these different yeasts we've found um, just for fun, just to build complexity into the wine. Oh, you're really still experimenting yeah. in the, mm -hmm. even in the... It's really interesting to see all, the different yeasts all have a little bit different properties. You know, a lot so. of wineries have that, you know, if you're a uh, big winery and you're doing, you know, your million cases a year or whatever, you, you could take three tons and put it aside as an experiment. <laughs> yeah. If you have an experiment go wrong, <laughs> you have problems. Well, that's true, um, and I can't afford to you know, do an experiment that I don't know is going to turn out well, but all these yeasts are proven, you know. So you um, sort of know where yeah, it's going and how it's going yeah, to fact. Yeah, yeah. Well, that gives you great versatility then, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's also just kind of a unique kind of approach, which, um, you know, I think from um, a marketing standpoint or just being able to, you know, tell a story and educate people, that's something I'm able to do because we have this history of kind of, um, finding these yeasts and using them and playing around with them and, and people have a lot of questions about that 
people, you know, there's, it's a kind of mysterious subject if it's not something you do for sure. a living. So it's fun to kind of educate people about there's that. There's a little bit of voodoo behind yeah. it. <laughs> Should we taste some wine? Yeah, please. Great. What are we going to start with here? Let's start with the Riesling and then we'll go to the Pinot after Great. that. So this is um, kind of the most pushing the, um, you know, into new winemaking territory of everything we do. Um, this Riesling's done on the skins, so it's got it's got quite an intense color to yeah, it. Yeah, I I um, was always interested in um, orange wine. I don't know a lot about it, obviously because it's something that happens in another part of the world um, traditionally. But um, you know, from uh, what I could gather about it, it's a really cool process, and and to, and, and came about like f you know for functional reasons. Um, when you hyperoxidize the wine, you know, right out of the gate, as soon as you've uh, destemmed, crushed in the winery, you basically oxidize everything that could potentially be oxidized. So it's over with, and the wine then can have this much longer life than a white wine that has phenols in it that could oxidize down the road, which is what I makes white fighting, wines. Right? You know, white, when white wines die young, it's because they oxidize. So right. this is like you hyperoxidize right from the get go, and then it can't oxidize anymore. Also, the skin tannins provide a lot of structure. Um, it's made like a red wine, so it can um, stand up to a much richer food than a white wine normally would. So in the areas where they don't grow a lot of red grapes, you kind of solve the problem of having a richer, fuller-bodied wine mm -hmm. by doing your whites on the skins. Um, so I always thought that was really interesting. Um, the, if the skin tannins are done right, they can add real richness and deliciousness to the wine. So um, I recognize that Riesling would be a really good candidate for this because it has high acid, high aromatics. So this past harvest, it just turned out there was a little Riesling available from Cole Ranch, which is like a kind of a Did marriage. you just get surprised by that? A little bit, hey, yeah. Hey, a friend of mine who's okay, a wine... that's some Riesling you well, A friend of mine who's a winemaker just kind of told me, like, in September, there's a little Riesling up there available. And, it's an amazing vineyard, so I jumped on it, and um, it was a small enough amount that it, if it hadn't worked out, you know, I could have... Not going to make or break Yeah, but um, luckily it worked out really well, and um, so it's kind of a, you know, thing I'm going to continue to do. It's um, it's a good wine, It's you know, so it's not gimmicky in that sense. Um, yeah, orange wine, you know, got super trendy yeah, there for a while, yeah. and people were doing some weird stuff with it. This wine, I can tell you, it's... Uh, the color is spectacular. I mean, mm -hmm. it's really rich and deep. I haven't even put my nose in the glass yet, and it's so aromatic. It's already hit me with like these kind of savory lemon flavors. And yeah, it's got aromas. A lot, yeah, no, it's got a lot of um, kind of citrus, apple, and quince. Yep, definitely. Did you say quince? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's. And we've eaten it. We've done it with a lot of spicy food, which is sure, really which... really fun because most wines. Uh, just don't work with spicy foods. There's something about these skin tannins that um, allow your palate to kind of keep tasting mm -hmm. the wine even with the presence of the spice. So. Sometimes when you do, and, and did this ferment dry all the way? Yeah, it's so there's 100 no, dry, yeah. 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 So I, sometimes I, Riesling, when it goes dry all the way, can get a little on the linear side. Mm -hmm. that, that that skin contact obviously yeah. rounds that out and there's a richness to it. Yeah, for sure. And it will continue to evolve because um, those tannins just, kind of form longer and longer chains with each other over mm -hmm. time in the wine. There's a little bit of that oxidized kind of mm -hmm. uh, characteristic yeah. to it, yeah. but not not clubbing you over the head, not not like it's a flaw or a mistake. Clearly this was your intent. Yeah. 
That bright acidity really stands up to it, doesn't it? Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's got a good balance. All this. What's the vintage on this one? It is uh, 2018. 18. Yeah. Okay. So I essentially, you know, like I said, I made it like a red wine, destemmed it into open top fermenters, um, did a brief cold soak, and then let it start fermenting. Did punch downs, and then macerated on the skins for like almost two weeks after it went dry post-fermentation to just try and extract more more tannins um, and then you know kind of reached the point where it needed to be pressed because you know leaving a dry wine just sitting there open um, on the skins for a while is an invitation to grow uh, nasties yeah so um, then we pressed it and you know I, never having done this I didn't know if that was long enough to get enough of the tannin or too much or what so just kind of take your best guess um, but it worked out really well once it kind of came out of the, the winter months in the barrel. Okay. You sure you went in the wood with this? I just neutral. Yeah, just I, neutral there's no, oak. there's no, there's no like new oak on it at all. No. But, um, no. And in fact, I had a couple stainless steel barrels I put in as well because I think there was like six barrels of it total. So just some yeah, really old, old, ten year old oak barrels. Yeah, and yeah, I had just a couple stainless steel barrels, and uh, then bottled it in March. Nice, really nice. How much did you make? 110 cases, I think. Okay. Yeah. So if you want some, you got to go out there and get some yeah. because it's yeah. going. Yeah. This is really an interesting wine. Really. Thanks. Really, really intriguing. What do we got next? Um, next, we are going to taste the 2015 Campbell Ranch Pinot Noir. So that's ah, kind of okay. our, our. So Campbell Ranch is that vineyard that's way north on the Sonoma coast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It takes me an hour and a half to get there. From Hillsburg. Yeah. So it's like <laughs> by the time I go out and sample the vineyard, it's a you know it's a four hour round trip. Wow. Um, but you know there's. I think you know seven or eight other wineries that source a little bit of fruit from it, and it's worth it to everybody. You know, it's a labor of love kind of deal because it's just the wine's so distinct from there, so special. I think um, it's worth the extra time, and it, it costs more to farm it too because it takes a long time. To yeah, get right. You gotta get labor and labor out like there, and yeah. equipment. Yeah, got oh, really pretty color. Yeah, and the fifteen vintage is um, a little denser, meatier because yeah. we had a really small crop of very small berries in fifteen that just kind of meant there was a lot of skin and just a little bit of juice. So there's extra color and extra tan on the 15 vintage um, compared to the, you know, the previous. Yeah, and that's previous. pretty strict standard with 2015 in general. Yeah, you've probably yeah. seen that in other reds. Yeah. Um, but they're gonna, you know, they're gonna have a long life, which is mm -hmm. one of the kind of upshots of it. There's more to age on these wines. Yeah, the, the, the color isn't, too delicate or too too big? It's sort of right in between, mm -hmm. right? Almost in, well, it's really inviting. One thing that's important to note is that there's two different things going on when you're looking at wine. There's color, but there's also brilliance. Right. And people don't right. necessarily always talk about that. Um, brilliance is um, not always there, but if you can make like healthy, you know, fresh wines, if you can, you know, Kind of get that in the process, then you get brilliance that shows up in the glass too. So how, how does it show up in the glass? I mean, it's a little bit of a mystery, right? But I'm just kind of saying that, like, you see brilliance in wines that are kind of handmade from really good vineyards. Mm -hmm. it, when you kind of get into the more mass-produced, um, yeah, the, the, you know, the maybe lower quality, but dusted off. Yeah, you know, maybe the color's nice, but you don't necessarily get that just bright, sure. fresh brilliance. Yeah. Um, you'll notice the difference if you're looking at wine all the time. I think. Oh yeah. Um, so, I, I see that in the pinots. There's there's a lot of thought too that um, 
when yeasts are producing uh, acetaldehydes during fermentation, and which is part of the process of capturing color, that some of the yeasts actually help hold on to the, that brilliance mm -hmm. too. So there's a lot of different kind of factors going into it. Well, the nose is kind of like a darker cherry. Yeah, for me, there's you know a little bit of bramble in it. Mm -hmm. um, it's got a nice balance. Some floral and mineral yeah, notes. Yep, yep, little bit, just a tiny bit of earthiness, tiny bit of bramble. Um, that's kind of that sauvage they call it. Um, another really nice thing about some of these coastal vineyards is you get kind of a broad um, fruit palette in the wine, not a one-dimensional. Right, right. Yeah, that's you know, we too much. You can't quite say it's not a. It's not black cherry jumping out yeah. of the glass at you. It's not fresh strawberry yeah. jam coming at you. It's, you and can't quite put your finger on what that is. Yeah, and there's always a little bit of rhubarb in these uh, Campbell Ranch Pinots. Oh, that's lovely. When you talk about balance, this wine is it. Grapefruit, great acid, tannins that are fine. Yeah, and this is definitely a food wine. Yeah. This is definitely Because, you know, acid, wine. again, when, when you have a good, good climate for... Noir, you're not losing acid because um, when you get heat spikes, then the plants start dumping it. Um, and the more like under control and cool the temperature is, the more the, mm -hmm. the plant can hold on to acid, it. which is critical for good wines. And that compared that the acidity combined with that little bit of tannin, or not a little bit, that, mm -hmm. that fine yeah. but fair tannin um, shows that this grape is going to age mm -hmm. and be really nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Acid's really show, show me this in 2025, and you'd be real happy, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I hope so, yeah. If you've just any left. It's funny, uh, I mean, I, I've only been making wine since 2013, so I don't have 10-year-old wines to go and mm -hmm. pull out of the cellar. And any of your mom's old wines? Not really. No? No. There's a few kicking around, but, um, you know, things just kind of got drunk over the sure, years. Sure, yeah. I, I, nobody assumed that we were going to, or guessed that we were going to start making wine again, so there mm -hmm. wasn't a impetus to, like, you know, really library stuff for the purpose of, like, tasting it, comparing it later. Yeah, so... Uh, what does it mean to you maintaining that heritage that your mom started? Well, I think um, I'm an only child, so um, you know, if anybody was going to do it, it was going to be me. There was nobody else there to um, kind of keep that going. And um, my mom was a really smart, really hard worker, so I really appreciated that about her. Um, she did something unique. And um, my dad was really supportive of her. He's a school teacher, but he thought what she did was great. And so um, to me, there was just a need to make sure that um, you know, we could keep doing this, keep the name on the bottle. Do you have kids? I do. I have a six-year-old. Yeah. 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 You start, start bringing him to work? You know, <laughs> it, he, like six-year-old, he's not he's interested six, in right, anything yeah. other than like Legos and right, dinosaurs. Sure. But um, he, he is kind of a super taster. Really? Yeah, he has a he has an amazing palate, so he at least has the some of the skill set. But um, well, my parents took the attitude like you can do whatever you want with your life. So I got to kind of offer the same sure, thing to him. You sure. know, if he wants to do this, that's great. But if he doesn't, that's okay too. You know. That's terrific. And what's the third one we have? We are going to taste the Zinfandel. So this is the Sainte Farms. This is the 17. Um, we just released this, and normally I'd probably. Um, hang on to was in a little longer but we sold through the 16 pretty fast so um we're just kind of forced to be pouring the 17. it's great but um it's also gonna improve 
It's a, mm -hmm. you know, it's a complex Zinfandel. Yeah, Zinfandel is an interesting variety because it goes so many ways. You can make the big, giant, jammy mm -hmm. uh, Zinfandel. You could make them lean and austere. You could make them fresh and fruity or earthy. Mm -hmm. which, which way did you go with it? Well, it's interesting. Um, this comes from Dry Creek Valley, which just by the nature of that particular growing area with the climate there, you get fairly robust, big yeah. zins. But this all, it's also a great vineyard. The Cyanese make some fantastic zins themselves. Um, there's some other, like, it's kind of contiguous with these old Mazako vineyards and the old Ridge uh, zin vineyard up there, so it's a really good spot. Um, so basically, I just kind of took the Pinot Noir approach with it. I tried to, I picked it, you know, ripe, phenolically developed, but as soon as I could to keep the sugar low and keep the alcohol under control. Mm -hmm. And then I took a really kind of light winemaking process with it, which was um, kind of limited punch downs to keep extraction low. Okay. Um, and that's worked really well. And, and also, that shows in the color yeah, here. We're it, not looking at a again, deep, rich wine. Again, but it's it a lot of brilliance, bright, yeah. Right, very brilliant, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's been um, it's been a hit because there are so many big kind of blown out stellazins out there. So mm -hmm. um, people are pretty uh, happy to find a you know really balanced zin that really shows the varietal characteristics. Interesting earthy notes to this, like fresh fresh herbs and a little bit of mushroom almost mm -hmm. to it, like dried mushrooms and mixed berries, but mm -hmm. but not again you can't. Nothing specifically jumps out. There's a complexity to it yeah. that's super nice. And then it's also got that white peppercorn that's kind of a mm. classic mm -hmm. Zinfandel attribute. This is 17, huh? Mm-hmm. Wow. Again, sometimes Zinfandels can be big brutes. There's a ton of finesse to this wine. Yeah. That's what this wine yeah. is. This is finesse. Yeah, well, really what I'm trying to do is make, you know, a Zinfandel that's got a little bit of that um, cool climate, like characteristic to it. Even though it's yeah. not coming, it's not coming from a cool climate. But but, you, it, but it reads but, that way yeah, for sure. Yeah, some kind of you know. I'm not cheating, but um, I'm trying to show a side of Zinfandel you don't often get. No, from, this is not a common from Dry Creek. Right. So it, particularly from Dry yeah. Creek where it's really hot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, wow, just delicious and interesting. And again, this. Not only with food, this would go with a wide range of food. You know, often you think Zinfandel, you got to think, okay, we're going to do something barbecue mm -hmm. or, or beef or something like this. Man, this could go with so many different things just because of the style you made it, and it's really great. Yeah, it's got some versatility for sure. Well, Brooke, thank you so much for your time. Uh, hearing uh, how you carry on your mom's legacy definitely shows in the bottle. Your wines are delicious, and I hope the next generation might take it up. <laughs> yeah, thanks, John. Appreciate it. Cheers. Okay. Cheers. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpourpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. 